Welcome to Blood is Red, volume one of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Blood is Red is also available as an ebook and an unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash blood is red. Hello, Junkie. Welcome to episode number five of Blood is Red, selections from my first short story anthology of the same name. Coming out October 31st, 2023, a new two and a half hour, never before heard full cast audio drama from me and also from Graphic Audio, who put the whole thing together. Druden is a World War II horror script co-written with director Adrian Picardi. It is gruesome, it is scary, and it hits you between the eyes right on Halloween. And consider this, my full cast audio drama acting debut. That's right, I am Colonel Mayberry in the production, named in honor of my author pal, Jonathan Mayberry, creator of V Wars and the Joe Ledger series, and many, many other, other books. Pre-order links for this full cast audio drama with 14 different actors are at scottsigler.com slash druden. And because I am a benevolent and generous FDO, I will play a two-minute action-packed sample of Druden immediately after this episode. And speaking of this episode, you're about to hear part one of The Great Snipe Hunt. This is a three-part story. You'll hear parts two and three in the next episodes of Scott Sigler Slices, and the author's note about this particular story will come after part three. Here we go with The Great Snipe Hunt Part One, followed probably by an ad, and then the sample of Druden. Enjoy. The Great Snipe Hunt by Scott Sigler the four students crossed the campus square like some soft drink commercial targeted at America's youth, or, perhaps, a group handpicked for a multicultural campaign. One with deep black skin, one with light brown, one with yellowish tan, and a tall one with a well-worn cowboy hat shading an alabaster white face. He also had perpetually sunburned red arms and a sunburned red neck, a fact the other three enjoyed pointing out to him as often as possible. We got a name for this back in Texas, the tall one said, shaking his head as the quartet headed for the lecture hall. Back there, we'd call this a snipe hunt. Students dotted the grassy square like lazy termites on a rotted log. They played frisbee or hacky sack, lay out on beach towels, or sat cross-legged, books in their lap, enjoying the sun and a clear blue sky. Quit your bitching, Jake, said the boy with a light brown skin. Don't back out now. You promised to help us. Besides... Shamiko and I will owe you one. Yeah, baby, said the girl with the flawless, smooth black skin. She flashed Jake a seductive smile. Who knows how I'll repay you? Jake looked away quickly, his face suddenly as red as his sunburned arms and neck. Oh, she like you, said Che, the group's fourth student. He spoke perfect English, except when he affected the sing-song talk of a Saigon prostitute. With his oriental skin and deeply slanted eyes, his native Brooklyn accent seemed more unbelievable than his over-the-top impressions. She like you long time! They loved to tease Jake. For all of his redneck behaviors, from his walk to his talk to his dress, he was a true southern gentleman. Even at 23, suggestive talk from a woman made him blush. 
while collegiate fashion fluctuated around him. Jake's field hand style remained as unchanged as the day he'd set foot on campus four years earlier. He cleared his throat, eager to change his subject. <clears throat> I know I said this would be fun, but the more I think about it, the sillier it seems. I love to hunt, Carlos, but I ain't never been hunting for an imaginary critter. Not imaginary, Jake, my man, but undiscovered, Carlos said. Think about it like that and we'll be fine. They reached the bowl-shaped lecture hall, entered, and headed for the front row. Carlos Herrera led, as he always seemed to do, his thick black hair bouncing in time with each step. Shamiko Johnson followed, her tight, blonde-black hair bun making her the tallest except for the six-foot-two Jake Longdale, who took each step with an exaggerated bow-legged bounce. Che Yang followed them all, as perpetually in the back as Carlos was in the front, his I Was Born Here t-shirt blazing white under the lecture hall lights. They sat quietly, waiting for Dr. Paul Pillion to begin his lecture. The hall was barely a quarter full, for while Dr. Pillion's class was very popular, he only accepted a limited number each semester. Not the best and the brightest, as he often said, but rather the dedicated and the disciplined. Pillion looked up from his notes as Carlos and company slid into their seats. He smiled warmly at Carlos, then picked up a briefcase-sized black plastic case at the foot of the chalkboard. He approached the quartet. Mr. Herrera, Miss Johnson, Pillion said with a voice that revealed effortless intelligence, a voice deep-set with self-confidence and authority. Your two acquaintances are not in my class. Would you care to introduce me and tell me why they are here? They're ringers, Doc P., Carlos said. This is Jake Longdale, engineering student, and Che Yang, electronics technology student. Dr. Pillion nodded. He smiled, immediately absorbing the impact of Jake and Che's skill set. I should have known you'd be ahead of the game, Carlos, a place you and Shamiqua always seem to be. Then, quietly, so only the quartet could hear. And here's that equipment you asked for, Carlos. Very clever. Do be careful with it. I'd hate to regret my decision to let you take it on your expedition. Pillion turned back to the podium, leaving proud smiles on the faces of Carlos and Shamiqua. Hey, what's in the case? Jake said. Never mind, Carlos said. Just listen closely and take good notes. Dr. Pillion began his annual lecture, an unspoken tradition in the biology program, perhaps the strangest final exam of any course on campus, perhaps of any course in the country. Pay attention and take careful notes, class, because this is your final exam assignment. As many of you know, I don't believe in paper exams. They provide no relevance to the real world of biology. When you're waist-deep in a Congo swamp or laying in the Kansas dirt, fighting off sand fleas as you watch prairie dogs for weeks on end, there aren't a lot of blue books on hand. Moderate laughter came from the class. Many of you know what this assignment is. If you don't, you aren't very inquisitive, considering that I've given the same final exam for ten years running. Jake leaned over and elbowed Carlos. A decade worth of snipe hunting? Well, that's why this guy makes the big bucks, eh? Hush up, Jake. I've been waiting four years for this lecture. This is what he uses to determine who goes into the field with him over the summer, and he only takes two students. Dr. Pillion turned and wrote a sentence on the board. It said, Nature abhors a vacuum. Human cities, with their endless stretches of concrete and steel, would seem to be devoid of natural populations. After all, the only vegetation is a few hardy weeds, landscaping trees, seasonal flowers, and some sparse grasses. 
Without ample vegetation, normally the primary energy producer in almost every ecosystem, cities should be a veritable wasteland for anything but humans and human-supported animals such as pets. And yet, this is not the case. In New York City, there are over 250 documented naturalized species of insects, plants, and animals. In that same city, the pigeon population measures in the millions, rats in the tens of millions, and only God knows how many trillions of cockroaches and other insects. Uncountable feral cats living just as well as any wilderness animal. Crows, gulls, and other birds, even hawks. Bats, squirrels, and other mammals. The list goes on and on. So what powers this ecosystem? The primary energy source is garbage. As all of you who've lived in a city know, the garbage supply is constant. Insects and vermin eat the garbage and waste. Birds and bats eat the insects. Hawks and cats eat the birds and vermin, etc. In addition to food, we have numerous habitats in the form of buildings and other structures. There's always a place to get out of the rain or to hide from a winter's chill. Pillion stopped and smiled, then pointed at Jake. Mr. Longdale, what can you tell us about adaptive radiation? Jake's face flushed red. He looked left, then right, as if someone might help him. An uncomfortable silence filled the room. Uh, I really have no idea, sir. Pillion nodded. Good answer. A scientist's answer. Pillion turned again to address the entire class. People, when you don't know something, say you don't know, then figure it out. Shamiqua elbowed Jake's shoulder, leaned in to whisper. Dude, you're supposed to shut up in here, but he asked me a question. Carlos shushed them both as Pillion continued. So, we've got a rich environment that no animal could have evolved to fill, and yet this environment is full of a wide variety of creatures. What this population shows us is the power of adaptive radiation, the natural tendency of life forms to fill any available niche. You should all be familiar with this concept by now, considering that it is the subject of this very class, although I suspect that's news to some of you based on your scores from the last test. More laughter from the class. Dr. Pillion clicked his pointer against the chalkboard, accentuating each of his next four words with a sharp clack. Nature abhors a vacuum. The filling of available urban niches is a perfect example. It is almost a biological rule. If there is a niche available, an animal adapts to exploit that niche. And yet in the city environment, there is one niche that remains unfilled, that of the top carnivore, the top of the food pyramid. A blonde girl dressed in a thick flannel shirt raised her hand. But Professor, aren't humans the main predator? Namely exterminators going after rats and cockroaches and stuff like that? I discount exterminators killing rodents and insects. In any city, those pest populations are so large that the exterminators' efforts are largely insignificant on the population as a whole. So we have all these primary producers feeding on garbage, carnivores eating them, concentrating the food energy. But who eats the predators? Hawks and cats, to be sure, they are key predators. But what if there was something smarter? Something that could catch and eat anything from the smallest cockroach to the largest stray dog. How do you think people would react to that? An acne-faced boy with a shock of curly red hair spoke up. People would wipe it out. We've seen that time and time again in history. Humans can't tolerate predators in their midst, even if those predators pose no threat to humans. 
You're right, Mr. McCready, you're very right. Humans wouldn't allow such creatures, and yet, the niche still exists. If adaptive radiation is indeed a fact, then this can mean only one thing, that this creature is smart enough to avoid humans. The room erupted with animated moans of contempt, but both Carlos and Shamiqua leaned forward, locked onto every word. Pillian continued, Human civilization has existed in various forms for thousands of years. Egyptian cities with large populations, for example, have existed for more than 5,000 years. But, Professor, the blonde girl said, 5,000 years isn't enough time for notable physiological evolution. You're thinking in human terms, Miss Chadwick. For argument's sake, say humans reproduce one generation every 20 years. In the 5,000 years since the previously mentioned Egyptian cities, that's 250 generations. But what if we're dealing with something on the level of rodents, say something that could reproduce every four months? Now we're talking 15,000 generations, or the equivalent of 300,000 years in human reproductive terms. Now you see the opportunity for adaptive evolution in urban niches. The red-haired boy stood up, clearly agitated. Come on, doctor. Something that's been around for 5,000 years and humans have never seen it? That's ridiculous. Sit down, Mr. McCready. I'll continue the lecture, although your objections to my theory are duly noted. First of all, you assume that humans have never seen this creature. An accurate statement would be that there is no known recorded sightings of this creature. How many records do we have from cities as recent as a thousand years ago? Not very many. Even the excellent records of those aforementioned Egyptian cities leave a great many gaps in the daily life of the inhabitants. But the real reason humans haven't seen this creature? It's because the creature doesn't want us to see it. Now the blonde girl stood up. So you're saying my final exam is based on a creature lurking in our midst, a creature that remains unseen, not because it instinctively gets away quickly or can hide or whatever, but because it knows we'll kill it? Are you saying this creature makes rational decisions? Very good, Miss Chadwick. You've hit the nail right on the head. Groans and shouts filled the classroom. Dr. Pillion turned to the chalkboard and started scribbling a list of points. Che leaned in and whispered to Shamiqua. This class seems disrespectful. You said Doc P is a big expert and all that, but class is dissing him left and right. Is it always like this? Shamiqua nodded, although her eyes never left her notes. Doc P encourages dispute. He says scientists should question everything, especially the experts. If we don't challenge the status quo, there will never be new discoveries. Dr. Pillion finished the list and turned back to the class. You all seem very resistant to my theory, but why are you resistant? Because this thing hasn't been seen? Thousands of new species are discovered each year. Cryptozoology is the study of animals reported, but not scientifically verified. We find new species all the time. For example, the Buquang ox was discovered in the Vietnamese rainforest in 1992. It was so new scientists named it not only a new species, but had to give it a new genus as well. People have lived in Vietnam for tens of thousands of years, yet there was no known record of this creature. The red-haired boy practically vibrated with protest. But there's a huge difference between a massive rainforest and a city. And what would that difference be? Cities have many hiding places and a dense biological population. The biodiversity is limited, of course, but the only thing that's missing really is the trees. 
The point, students, is that trees or no trees, there are species out there waiting to be discovered. Which brings us to your final exam. Find this creature. You are to examine the environment in which this creature must live, then come up with a way to study it. Capture is optional. I will grade you based on your inventiveness combined with the application of theories we've covered in class. I will give you the following elements of my theory. First and foremost, this creature must possess considerable intelligence in order to realize that detection is a threat and to have actually avoided detection for thousands of years. These creatures would be so intelligent, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they exhibited limited tool use. The other main point to keep in mind is camouflage. This creature has avoided humans for millennia. It assuredly has some form of camouflage, perhaps even the color-shifting ability of a chameleon. Pillion smiled, held up his hands and shrugged as if to say, what could be easier? That's all there is to it. If you've studied hard in my class, you'll have all the knowledge you need to find this creature. If you haven't paid attention, I'm sure you'll discover the not-so-rare animal known as the D-. Your papers are due in four days. Good luck. The students, some grumbling, some buzzing with excitement, stood and filtered out of the lecture hall. Carlos turned to Jake and Shay. Now you see what we're dealing with. You guys still up for helping us out? <sighs> now I get why you wanted the infrared cameras and the motion sensors. But come on, isn't this a lot of trouble to go through for some imaginary critter? That's not the point, Shamiqua said. This assignment isn't just a final exam. This is what he uses to determine who he takes into the field. This year, he's searching for a new species of deer in the Congo. The people who go into the field with him usually get a free ride to any graduate school they want. An uncomfortable silence fell over the group. Since they'd met four years earlier, they'd spent the majority of their time together. Graduation was fast approaching. With it came graduate schools and separate paths. Jake broke the stillness. Come on, Shammy, you know you don't have to ask us again. We'll do it. Che and I will rig a setup that even your Doc Pillion couldn't touch. The four met early their freshman year. All attended the prestigious college courtesy of an academic scholarship reserved for financially challenged students. Financially challenged was a term Carlos translated simply as poorer than shit. The quartet possessed brilliant minds, scored obscenely high in the SAT, yet none of them could have afforded tuition, let alone books, room, and board. At their scholarship group orientation, which Shamiqua referred to as the Poe Niggas Convention, the four had hit it off. With little money for the normal college kid extracurricular activities, they often hung out together. When one had money, he or she shared it, but most of the time they were all flat-out broke. It was at one of these hangout sessions that Shay dubbed the group the Penniless Four. As they grew ever closer in the following years, the name became a badge of belonging and acceptance. Together, they found pride in their backgrounds and the obstacles they all fought to surpass. Through the group, they beat the odds and they discovered themselves. That was part one of The Great Snipe Hunt. It cuts off a little short because the next chunk is pretty long, so it didn't really make any sense 
to continue that one on. So we stopped it right there. We'll have the rest of it for you in the next episode. Let me run an ad to pay the bills. When we come back from the ad, the sample of Druden, which is out on Halloween day, 2023. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Several of the men of first platoon were gunned down, including Charlie. The others tried to dive for cover, but there wasn't much cover to be had. Their leader was down. They didn't know what to do. They were sitting ducks. They're going to break. If they do, we're screwed. Eric looked around wildly, then shouted to his left. Rabbi, if you get to that stump on our left, can you take out the gunner? 20 yards to that stump. Give me some cover and I'll nail the bastard. Tibbet, Palmer, go with Rabbi. Lifter, Abelson, Harris, covering fire on my command. Lifter readied his bar. Abelson and Harris got ready with their M1s. Wilson, Potts, with me. We're going right to link up with first. Rabbi, take out that gunner. Rabinowitz, Palmer, and Tibbetts nodded, their eyes betraying terror. Covering fire, now! Harris and Abelson popped up and fired their M1s. Lifter then popped up from behind cover and fired tight bursts from the bar. Rabinowitz aimed down and fired at the pillbox as bar rounds chipped at the concrete. The MG-34 barrel swung back toward Lifter, revealing a hint of the gunner's hands. There you are, sweetie. A small cloud of blood puffed from the opening of the pillbox as the barrel coming from it jerked upwards and stayed aimed at the sky. Eric crawled out from under Charlie's body and lifted his gaze to the cover held by 1st Platoon. Uh. First platoon, on me! Eric rose, his face a patchwork of dirt and Charlie's blood. Get up, dog faces! Let's go! You have been listening to Blood is Red. Volume 1 of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. For more information on Scott, please visit scottsigler.com. Blood is Red was produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Copyright 2023, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is Dead Silence by the composer Vazia Sakal. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.